Hey, you're listening to FluxPod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Nabil Ayers, who has a new book out called My Life in the Sunshine. And uh, that book's about his career, but also about, uh, you know, his odd relationship with his his biological father, who is the jazz musician Roy Ayers. And uh, he's also the uh, the current president of the U.S. uh, branch of Beggars Group, which includes 4AD, which he's worked at for a long time, but also uh, Matador Records, uh, XL, Rough Trade. So we're going to talk about kind of both of those things and I think kind of equal measure, maybe tipping slightly more into the record industry part. But uh, yeah, that's that. Uh, next week, the next episode coming up, that's going to be Karina Longworth, who you might know from the excellent film podcast, You Must Remember This. Highly recommend the current season, erotic 80s. But uh, let's just get into it. I'll see you next week. All right. Uh, Nabil, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Nabil Ayers. Um, I guess most recently I wrote a book that just came out called My Life in the Sunshine. It's a memoir. Um, I'm the president of Beggars Group. I worked for 4AD under Beggars for 13 years, and uh, I'm a New Yorker. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get into all of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the I think the first thing about the book is that you know, you're kind of balancing a few different things. You're you're covering the history of your family and finding a family. You're talking about biracial identity, and then also your career in music. I think any of those things is its its own book. So I was curious, like, what was the balancing act? Because just reading it was like, man, I, I, this is, paced very well to kind of keep like all those balls in the air, like juggling it all. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that, that I think, that was hard. I mean, it's weird because I didn't set out. Well, I didn't set out to write a book in the first place. I was just writing a lot, um, kind of writing shorter things, publishing some shorter things and kind of dipping my toe in the water, writing about my father and my race, which were sort of more difficult subjects for me than like the record stores I used to own or the bands I played in. That stuff was all fun. And so so when I ended up kind of realizing that I was writing a book, which is really just once I'd written enough short stuff and thought like, oh, weird, I wonder if I could put this all together. I think that's the point at which I thought, um, I guess, how does it all fit together? And there's there never a point where I thought like, oh, well, I should take out this part of my life and just make it about this. It kind of, I think what, what ties it all together, it being the book and my life, is that those are all parts of it and they're all related. So I think what was not necessarily hard, but what took a lot of work was just sort of, like you say, the kind of pace and the balance of, of making, making it feel like those things all connect, which, which they do in real life. Right. And I think also the, the through line is music and the music mm-hmm. is something that connects you to your father, uh, who is the, the musician Roy Ayers, yeah. who I think would be best known for uh, Everybody Loves the Sunshine, mm-hmm. probably the most iconic song he's got. Um, but I'm curious, uh, like, this kind of, actually, you know, let's start here. Like, like can you just briefly tell the story of the, uh, I guess, the origin of all of this? Was, yeah. like, of, your, of your the mother of me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I think people should probably have that bit of background. Yeah, yeah. The background, the background is, is interesting. And I, I've always known this story, which I think is, is sort of hard for a lot of people to understand or to kind of wrap their heads around. But, but the really short version of the story is my mother 
was 20 and she grew up in Long Island in a suburb of New York and moved to New York City as, as soon as she was as soon as she could when she was 18 and kind of didn't know what she was doing and decided at a really young age that she wanted to be a young single mother which is an interesting decision for a young woman to make um yeah but, pretty much in any era yeah exactly <laughs> that that remains um but decided she wanted to do that and I, I wouldn't say she was actively looking for somebody but was kind of just like not doing much in her life was already a retired ballet dancer um and just loved living in new york and walking around and her brother my uncle alan who i'm still super close to is a musician and he kind of knew roy they'd met a couple times my father and my mother and my uncle were at a club one night i think the village gate or some famous new york jazz club and they ran into roy and my mother's story and i've always known this is the second that she met him she was 20 years old she said oh this is the person i'm gonna have my kid with and where it gets more interesting is that they were never together they were never really dating they just kind of hung out a few times and and one of those times she said to him i want to have a kid with you you don't have to be around you don't have to be part of our lives we don't need or want anything from you and he said okay and so it's funny now because people kind of talk about it as an agreement or an arrangement, but I think it was less formal than that. But but in the end, that's really what it was. So so I grew up never knowing him, but always knowing that story. And so, of course, there are issues with it, but it wasn't divorce. He didn't leave us. It was none of the sort of traditional things that people know how to think about or talk about. So it was an interesting thing and still is. Yeah, it seems like a uniquely like early 70s kind of story. <laughs> right. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So... What was your earliest relationship with his music like? Like, yeah. Like, what, like, what is it like? Like, do, were you aware that it was him, that is your father that you're listening to? Or is it, did it take a little while before you kind of yeah. had an understanding of that? I was aware, but, but the weird thing is, I don't think I really didn't, I didn't necessarily know what that meant. I mean, there's so much music around my house, being around my mom and my uncle, the people, there were always people playing music, there were always records playing, or went to so many live concerts when I was a kid. So it was never, it was never not part of my life. Um, I know we had my father's records, and I don't remember really thinking of them as any different or more important than other records. And what's interesting is my uncle made an album when I was a kid, and that to me was more important, probably because I knew him and I actually used to play music with him when I was a toddler, and there's pictures and recordings of that. So so that connection that I think a lot of people expect me to have with my father's music, I actually have with my uncle's because he was a part of my life. And, and I, you know, I did know who it was that was behind the music. Yeah, I guess like the, the relationship I, I would just kind of imagine you having with that is kind of extrapolating something from those records. Right, right. I mean, yeah, at a young age. It was kind of all just music. I mean, the thing I have a pretty solid memory of is actually the first time I saw him live, when I, which is a section in the book. But I was, uh, I think, seven or eight years old, and he played. We lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, my mother and I, and he played this big spring concert opening for Patti Smith and the Grateful Dead in this huge football stadium, which is a pretty crazy oh, wow. show in 1979. And uh, and I remember the concert well. I remember being outside. It was a daytime thing in the afternoon. It was sunny out, and I remember being in the stadium and watching him play and kind of really noticing like, oh, wow. And I'd, I'd seen tons of live music by this point when I was seven or eight. So it wasn't like, wow, my first concert. It was more like comparing it to other things gave me the opportunity to realize, oh, this is like, this person is really charismatic. I'm watching how his band reacts, how the audience reacts, how he kind of drives all of it. This is really interesting. I remember thinking those things 
as a kid and um and my mother i mean i i don't remember this apparently we went backstage and hung out with him that day but weirdly i have no memory of that part of it i just remember the concert yeah i think one of the things i, I found really interesting about you know you all the times where you kind of write about yourself and him is kind of seeing the ways that you manifest elements of him right you know without really knowing it which i, I think happens here and there yeah. i think it's, it's it's an interesting phenomenon and yeah, it definitely. seemed to be like part of what your mother was going for in the first place mm-hmm. i think of like so. capturing something that was special about him right I, yeah she definitely i mean yeah i mean the way she describes it she just immediately knew the second she talked to him for one second like this is the person um and again not this is the person i want to marry or be with but this is the person i want to be the father of my child so so yeah that was quite deliberate and and maybe in a normal way, maybe in an abnormal way, I think I certainly always, what the times I did get exposed to him, which were not that many as a kid, I definitely noticed things and thought about them sort of in the context of myself. And at some points it was like, wow, this person seems pretty kind of magical and charismatic and cool or, you know, interesting and confident. I wonder, am I like that? Do people see me the way that, you know, even as a kid, yeah. I definitely felt those feelings for sure. I mean, on the flip side of that, do you find that you share your mother's kind of intuitive, uh, kind of instantaneous like decision making? Uh, I've never made a decision like I, that. I don't know if that's like how your mom always was, but she right. certainly was at a crucial moment. Less so now. I mean, I, I mean, hmm, that's interesting. I mean, it, it's so funny to think because I've spent so much time with my mom. I mean, it's as we talk, it's my mother's birthday and I'm having dinner with her tonight in a few hours. I mean, I see her all the time. We're so close. We've known each other, obviously, since the day I was born. Um, so I think about it less because it's always been there. Whereas with my father, because he's never been there, it's really easy to analyze similarities and differences and, and things that happened the few times we met. But I do have a lot in common with my mother. We, we, I stand the same way she does. I, I see pictures of myself and I think it's funny that I think I stand like a ballet dancer and I know it's because I see her stand that exact same way. So, I mean, of course, I, I guess I'm a combination of both my parents, but it's interesting to have, I feel like so much from the one that I never really spent any time with. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this book is about your history in music, which I, I think is really interesting in that you've just kind of kind of been on almost all sides of it right from being a musician to uh working you know owning uh, a retail store co-owning a real retail store of you know and then becoming part of the music industry like on on the kind of the record label side Mm -hmm. and moving up the ranks there yeah and i think kind of thinking about the end point of that where you are now as the, the president of this label group um it seems like that's a very good combination of skills. And is that common for people in your position to have had that kind of range of experience right. in the industry? I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other people. I mean, Matt, who was the president of Beggars before me, played in bands, does his own small label, um, didn't have a store, but, you know, worked in college radio, has, you know, marketing, like kind of actually had a similar long time background and we're almost the exact same age which is funny too so at least at at my company i think it is and at beggars and and the labels there's so many people who come from record stores which is i think a great thing and a great way to to learn lots of different parts of the business in one place because you deal with the public and you deal with labels and artists come in and all that um i don't know how common it is but i do think it's a big asset to 
to sort of be familiar with lots of those different parts of the industry and not just come up from someone who played in a band and became an A&R person, which I think is kind of common at major labels. Did you have any inkling that that was kind of the course you were on that you were going to work on the label side? Yeah, always. I think it was always, I want to play in a band and I want to work for a label and hopefully there's a way to do both for as long as I can. And <laughs> that's exactly, that was always the plan. And, and I, kind I wasn't of worked, actually expecting you to say that, honestly. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's, I just from my earliest memory, I was always interested in the business part too. It's not like, I think a lot of people, and this isn't the bad thing, but a lot of people want to play music, end up playing music, and then sort of inherently from exposure, learn about the business because you have to deal with it as a musician. But I think I had a weird jump on that. And I don't know why, but when I was five and I was listening to records, I was looking at the labels on the back of the records and I was noticing, oh, these both say epic. I wonder what that means. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that there was something going on. Um, and I was putting on shows with my friends when I was a kid and we would charge money at the door and we would put up flyers and we'd try to promote the show. And at the end of the show, we would split the money. And even that, you know, that's that's the music business. Like all those things always interested me just as much as actually playing. So kind of in the way that people would kind of say like, uh, this is what people think I do. This is what I actually do. What, <laughs> you know, I guess it's probably more for like the, the, your previous position was general manager of 480. Yeah. Uh, so like what would people assume you're doing versus what your actual job is? Cause right. I think a lot of people don't really understand how yeah, that's, that's a good way company to put jobs it. work or they'll, or they'll think of the version of the job from, yeah. you know, 20 years ago, from 30 TV. years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I was at 480 for 13 years, always in the same position, which was general manager of the U.S. So um, there's a worldwide head of 480. But my job, what people thought it was, was going out and signing bands. And that's it. I think that's what, you know, and they and they say, oh, you're a record producer, which I'm not. In music, the record producer is the person who's in the studio kind of working out songs and deciding the way the record sounds. And it's more of a technical with the artist position. Um my actual position was definitely not a and It wasn't my responsibility to go find artists or to sign artists. I was really heavily involved in that because usually when 4AD was trying to sign someone, they would want to talk to people and find out, you know, what are you going to do for us? How does the U.S. company work? Who works here? What are all the different departments you have? So, so that's where I would get involved as the person who ran the U.S. company. I would kind of explain all the various departments. Um, and the day-to-day -day job was really overseeing all these different people at, at beggars who do press and radio and marketing and then there's tons of back-end stuff like production and finance and artwork and everything so it was my job to really try to make everything cohesive and make it work from the point where we were about to put out an album so artist gets finished with a record it's my job to kind of open it up to the staff all the people who are going to work on it and come up with a plan that's hopefully you know a year and a half or two years long and involves the artist and involves the UK and the other territories. And, and it was really fun. Yeah. And in your time doing that role, like you're, you're kind of overseeing a lot of pretty big launches, kind of a resurgent time for 480. Right. So yeah. There's like the national St. Vincent, mm -hmm. Deer Hunter, Grimes, Purity Rank, Tune Yards. Yeah. Those are all like big thief. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> these are like good list. <laughs> big names. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's just a, a bridge list. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so much fun. Uh, what would be like towards the beginning of that? I guess like the National and Deer Hunter and Grimes would be kind of towards the beginning. Yeah, of your right opinion. when I started, I started in January 2009. And that's right when St. Vincent Actor 
um, Camera Obscura, My Maudlin Career, and Dark Was the Night, that compilation that the National worked on with tons of artists for age-related oh, yeah. charities. So those were that all... Incredible uh, Dirty Projectors song. Yeah, I love, that's, that. I love that song. What is it? Uh, Naughty Pine. It's so yeah. good. Um, so that was... I started right as those records were kind of already kind of in the pipeline, but I got to be involved in the, the months leading to them coming out. And then that's when, yeah, right around then... We signed Grimes and Deer Hunter and Future Islands and all those artists you mentioned. So it was a really exciting time. And I think I got a lot of unnecessary credit as if, I mean, the timing was such that I started and all these great things happened. But I mean, the reason 4AD hired someone in America, there wasn't a specific 4AD person here. It was because this was starting to happen and they wanted someone in the office. So I didn't go find and invent those great bands. I was just there to help make it all work. Right. But, you know, you're, you're the guy running the... Uh... Yeah the ball into the end zone for them. Because <laughs> <Sure. laughs> yeah. I mean, all, I mean, I think all of those artists had already released at least like two or three records before. Yeah. That. So, yeah. Exactly. You know, they, they, there was some runway there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it was so, fun. To, yeah. I mean, so many of those, you know, St. Vincent, especially at that point, really the next two records did so well and were so much fun to work on. Oh yeah. I mean, actor is one of my favorites that she's done yeah, too. So good. Uh, when you have like that kind of runway, when you already have an artist that's kind of like built up to a certain extent, you know, on a label usually smaller than the one they're coming into, mm-hmm. like what are the steps that you would take to kind of push it further? Like, like so like your part of the job would be to come up with these strategies or work with people on these sort of strategies. Yeah. So like what, like from your perspective, like what is important there? Right. I mean, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the things that I think we did so well, especially then. I mean, I can talk about it as if it was a different time, but it kind of was. It was pre-streaming. It was very much, you know, kind of iTunes and digital marketing and and blogs. And this is all like the early 2010s, really. Um, and so what what our office still is, but was specifically at that time so, so good at was like an artist comes in from a smaller label or maybe a self-released album and kind of has some sort of a base that exists. I mean, it was really that there's... When our office even then was 40 something people. Now it's over 60. They're just so many great, smart people who all love what they do and have connections in their various departments. And that's a lot more than some smaller labels. And that's not at all to say that a smaller label is bad. You might get a totally different, great experience there. But what really worked for us was having those people and not being afraid to spend money on stuff, which is also a great thing to have not that you want to just go crazy and just spend money but you know somebody has a cool idea it costs a bunch of money the band so like, likes where, it. What, like we, what's a good example of like where that extra money would go right i mean i'm trying to think like look, the saint vincent with strange mercy she got the cover of spin which was a huge deal at the time and, and she was you know i think one of the smaller artists at the time to be on the cover of that so like it was great to say you know let's snipes and let's do huge posters of saint vincent's spin cover all over new york and la the week the record comes out that costs a lot of money but that's the the cool kind of statement thing to do that we would do because it felt right you know and i guess also they go into like music videos and things like that. right of course yeah yeah that's which which is usually would very much up to the artist and who i mean so many artists that we work with yeah, I think particularly what they she had very good, slick-looking oh, yeah. videos. Those videos are great. And, and that was yeah. usually her already knowing the director she wanted to. This is the case with so many artists. You know, they, they know what they want to do. They have a friend who's a director or they're in contact with some famous director. So a lot of that, that works great when it's the artist's idea. And this is true of kind of a lot of things and, and less well when it's us saying, okay, we'll go solicit some ideas for videos for you. That's harder than an artist having a great idea and us helping, you know, figure it out. 
So as things move towards streaming, I guess what year would that really kind of take hold in the United States? Like probably 2013, 2014? Yeah, maybe not take hold then, but kind of feel like it was starting. Yeah, that was still still pretty like iTunesy 2013, 2014. (laughs) Yeah, but like as you're kind of dealing with that transition, which is Mm -hmm. a pretty huge one as it happens, uh, like how does your approach change? Like, what is the the shift on your end of it? It's it's less first week heavy. I mean, it used to be, uh, and this is probably for many artists and labels, big and small, it used to really be about getting everything you can the week the record comes out. That's when everyone's going to pre-order it. That's when everyone's going to go to the store or go to iTunes or do whatever they're going to do. And not that it's done after that, but that is the week. That's when you're trying to do everything and have all the visibility. And now... Of course, we still focus on release week, but because with streaming, people aren't, you know, you're only going to listen so many times that week, but what you really need people to do is just keep listening. So now I feel like campaigns are longer. We need more videos or more remixes or more things that keep coming through the pipeline to make the album feel like it's still current and still relevant and that. That, okay. that all existed that, before. Okay, that's really interesting to me because yeah. I find that a lot of labels put a lot of the energy on that pre-release of just kind of like a, a slow drip of songs right, right. Uh, released to uh, streaming, whatever. And then like sometimes it'll just feel like once the record's out, it's like, well, we're done. We did all we could. <laughs> right. So yeah. like how do you um, try to push against that? Because I think of like how effective it would be in the old days, I'm thinking of like even just like 80s, 90s MTV, where people promote the same record for two years. Right. You know, right. if it had any kind, like even things that were kind of like medium successful. So it's, it seems like there isn't as much of an opportunity to do that because of the nature of media change. But like, what attempts have you had to kind of like like increase the length of a promotion period right i mean of course a lot of it does fall on the artist i mean if they're touring that's a huge thing that's always the thing if it's like okay we know they're doing what is it june now we know they're doing festivals summer 2023 and this album is just coming out now we know that we have at least a year of activity and we should plan out well in advance when we want videos to drop when we want maybe a new single to come when we want them to play a song on late night TV. Not that we can control every one of those things, but at least have sort of a plan and a timeline and, and goals to to do the things that make it feel present and relevant. That's really the whole thing. How does the late night TV thing work? Is that like largely something that you lobby for with uh, promo and then you just kind of hope for the best? Like like pretty much any yeah, kind of media? Yeah, kind of. I mean, you know, there, every artist has a publicist whose job it is to try to get reviews and features and all those things. And, and late night TV falls into that. And of course, it's super competitive. There are only so many slots. There are plenty of times of year when there's nothing, you know, when shows are dark is the term. Um, and a lot of it falls you know comes down to the song or the band being great live or you know all the things because it really is it's a live performance on tv so i feel like it's luck and timing and relationships just like kind of a lot of things are yeah i think just recently like japanese breakfast was on siren live which is oh, like yeah. a pretty Amazing. huge deal but yeah. it seems like a lot of things had to line up for that to happen right and i mean what an incredible year or whatever year yeah. plus she's had with the book and the record it's kind of you know the perfect storm yeah i i, I gotta imagine the book fed into that yeah in way, to, even right? though it's like not really like on tv it's just something right, that right. makes it so you're aware of her yeah totally so you know as you got promoted i think it was pretty recently right it was in the past year or so yeah this is january yeah 
Okay, so this is like your first year. As, uh-huh. <laughs> so, you're, so, so, how does your job change when you kind of go up that scale of uh, magnitude? So, just yeah. so people understand, like Beggar's Group is kind of a conglomerate of indie labels. So, 480 is one of them, but also uh, Matador, XL. Uh, who else is in there? Rough Trade, Rough Trade, and Young. Yeah, so it's yeah. five labels. So, I used to just work for 480, one of the five labels. So, you know, pretty deep into the eight or nine albums that we put out at 4AD each year and nothing else in the same building is all. I mean, everyone in New York is all under one roof. So all the labels are there. Um, but there's a big, there's smaller label staff and bigger beggars staff who work on all the labels and all the albums. So now as the president of beggars, um, I work across everything, but I don't run any of the labels that the actual labels, people within the labels run the labels. I really run the office and now I oversee all the people who work for all the labels. So it's a lot more, I'm, I'm a big step away from music and artists and albums, which is certainly less fun. Um, and a big step towards finance and actually managing the people who work on all those records. But I'm in the same building. I get to work with all five labels, which is incredible. It's super fun to be in black midi meetings and interpol meetings and all these things that i wasn't in before so that's the huge upside so it sounds like your job is just incredibly busy so like i'm kind of curious like how did you manage to write a book and all that yeah. like how, like what is the, the you have time management advice for right. people <laughs> i mean the thing about the book that that i keep saying that's funny is that i think it worked because nobody asked me to do it there's no i didn't have to do it and for a long time nobody and i mean nobody except for me knew that i was doing it i was so scared when i realized like wow i wonder if i'm writing a book that i just really kept it to myself and tried to get it to a certain point because i didn't i'm the kind of person i don't want to say oh yeah i'm writing a book and then not write a book that's (laughs) i can't do that so so uh i was just i mean i'm a morning person and, and so is my wife and she's a financial planner and that's a pivot for her in the last few years and when she was starting this firm with her business partner she was working she had a real job so she was working a ton on weekends doing a ton in the morning and so I just used that time to write and and I would that's just it was my hobby it was something I loved doing so it wasn't like oh I have to find time to write it was honestly like when can I get a few hours I want to write more and I was taking a memoir writing class and you had had some experience writing. I mean, you'd, you'd written for a lot of different publications. And I yeah. think like, kind of like the germ of this was in the Times, right? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I got this, this really weird, lucky confluence of things. This is all related where my uncle, who I talked about earlier, Alan Braufman, released this album in 1975 called Valley of Search. It's this amazing free jazz New York record that I didn't realize was kind of a Discogs collector nerd thing. Um, and so I reissued it on my own small label, which we called Valley of Search in 2008, or sorry, 2018, uh, four years ago. And the plan was really like, no one's going to care about this. I'm just doing this because a small number of people will be into it. I love it. It's a cool thing to do. This, this is his legacy. This should exist. And it kind of, I don't want to say it blew up because I mean, it's still a, a weird free jazz record, but it really did well and got a pitchfork review and got a big feature in the wire and all these things that I kind of didn't expect. And I wrote this piece about like, while I was reissuing it, I was talking to my uncle so much, I was listening to it. And it's such a part of my life and my childhood that I was in this writing mode. So I thought, wow, I should really be writing about all of this because this is exactly where I am right now. So I started writing about it and ended up kind of with this piece about it and, and was able to pitch it to the New York Times and they ran it, which was crazy because I was just like someone who'd published a couple things and wasn't really a writer. And suddenly I got to write this piece 
by me, a kind of about me and my uncle. Like it was a really, it was a really lucky, weird thing to have happen. So I think that was like the impetus for like, wow, I can, I can write more about my life and my family and all this stuff. And that's kind of yeah. Like, I think also is getting the feedback. Oh, this is interesting. Of course, right. <laughs> from other right. people. Yeah, and realizing. I, I wow, think sometimes, people... like even when you have a sense that something's important or interesting, you know, there's mm-hmm, still the humility mm-hmm. of like, I don't know, does anyone care? Is anyone going to care? I, I mean, yeah. that's yeah. I should have that T-shirt <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think another thing about this is that, you know, as you're kind of writing this, it seems like you're experiencing a lot of it, certainly like finding parts of your family and familial connections. So it's kind of like reporting a journey as you're on it. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's what's been so wild about the whole process is, you know, writing a lot about my childhood and my father and my mother and all these things, you know, digging back decades in my head and trying to remember things and interviewing people. But then as I was doing that, all these crazy things were happening in real time where I did 23andMe and discovered this family tree on my father's side because I know so little about him. And that opened all these doors to all these relatives and people on his side of the family. And I found out about my enslaved ancestor and connected with the slave owner's descendant who's alive. Like it all Yeah, that is, so that is crazy. probably the wildest part. Of it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. And that's and we still we email all the time and we're, we're friends, which is, which is wild. And I, I guess probably how it should be. It feels right. But um, yeah, so it was crazy to be what I thought, like writing about my life and then things would happen that would make me, I, I mean, once I had the book deal and the book was largely done, there were a couple of times when I had to call my editor and say, well, this just happened. What do we do? And she would say, write about it and add a chapter and change the ending, <laughs> which is what we did. <laughs> how many the, times the real, happened? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, that's, what's funny is it's not, I, I kind of thought, because this, you know, I loved doing it, but it took a lot of energy. It took a lot uh, to do to put this together. And I felt like these are not things I've really talked about much in my life. It feels good to put it out there. The book's coming out. Ah, what a relief. Great. It's all out there. And all that's happened is just tons more feedback, way more than I expected. So many new people getting in touch. So many new stories popping up. It's really like it's the opposite of what I thought. I thought I didn't think this would close the door, but I had no idea how much it would open it. Yeah. I mean, as we speak, the book's out, I think, next week. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, then you have the whole other phase of it being in the world. And I imagine <laughs> right. you're probably going to like a lot of people connecting, I think, especially with this family history or finding family part of it or, or the biracial identity part of it. There's a lot of it where it just seems like a lot of people will probably end up coming to you and just, you know, connecting just like in a real way of just right. having had this uh, experience of you sharing it. Yeah, the weirdest one is uh, is the woman who is the vocalist on Everybody Loves the Sunshine and my father's song messaged me on Facebook and said, I'm the singer on that song. I would love to talk to you. And we're supposed to talk this weekend. Oh, wow. This, the, story, the story never ends, you know? It never ends, yeah. And I can't wait to talk to her. Yeah. So uh, I think before we wrap up, I have a question about you and music. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time being a musician. And it seems yeah. like that is something that, as far as I can tell, is receded. Like, have you... Do you still play? Do you still get a chance to do that part of your life? Not really. I mean, I the last band I was in was called The Long Winters, a band from Seattle. The last tour we did was, I guess, 2008, which is a long time ago now. Um, and, since, and that's the year I moved to New York. And in New York, I mean, I play drums. So I don't have a drum set in New York. I have two sets at different friends' houses in other cities. So I rarely play. I mean, you know, once or twice a year with friends out of town, but nothing regular and I, and I think about it a lot i mean because i've always been in, into the business side even when i was in a band 
I would say the playing was maybe 50% of the fun and the other half of the fun was whatever, getting a cool review or being on tour or meeting people or all the kind of the other things. And so what I realized definitely working at 4AD is I still got so much of what I love about it. In fact, maybe more because at 4AD, when you're in one band, it's hard. Things might be going well, but when they're not, that's it. They're just not going well. And it's really a drag when that happens. And working at a bigger label where lots of things go well, I could always focus on that and kind of feel some of that same feeling. So I definitely miss playing, but at the same time, I don't miss driving around. I don't miss waiting. I don't miss sharing hotel rooms with three other guys, <laughs> all that stuff. It's, it's a balance. You know? It does sound that now that you have the book finished, that could just become your new morning activities. Uh, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> go, going one man band uh, yeah. an but hour that, or two every morning. But, but this does feel so much like that, that's what's funny. I mean, I was always a drummer. So like I didn't do the interviews. I knew no one was really watching me on stage. I didn't write the words. And and this feels so much like being in a band in some ways, like all the shorter pieces I've put out, I, I joke are MP3s, they're singles <laughs> and my album's coming out soon. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Album drops this Wednesday. <laughs> exactly. The whole thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this has been a real joy to talk to you about all of this. Thanks. Uh, it's great to talk to you. So like, how can people find the book and find you? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, everything. the book is called "My Life in the Sunshine." It's on Viking, which is a huge publisher. I'm very lucky, so it's. Of course, I would go to your local indie bookstore. They should have it, um, and it's available at all the big places too. Uh, and my website is nabilairs.com. N a b i l a y e r s. Now that is all the information, book tour, all that stuff. And of course, people can just find all the beggars before it takes right, stuff right. on their own. <laughs> yeah, Google. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. All right. We live in blue.